you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn with me please to Exodus chapter 20 and the Church Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 118, page 118 of the Church Bible, Exodus 20, and we're reading from verses 12 through 17. For those of you who faithfully watch us on our Fox Carolina broadcast on a Sunday morning, a very warm welcome to you and those on our live stream broadcast from neighboring states and overseas as well. We're delighted and thrilled you're with us this morning. Claire mentioned moments ago that we have been steadily working our way through the Ten Commandments today, and today as we come to Commandment 8, we're handling it a little differently. And in fact, we're taking Commandment 8 and joining it to Commandment 10, and I trust the reasons why will be self-evident in our exploration of the passage later this morning. So we're beginning Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else belongs to your neighbor. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. When I lived in Inverness, Scotland, part of my responsibilities back then as a minister was that I was chaplain to a local high school. And we had a chaplaincy team there, and my focus was on the 16 through 18-year-olds. And in essence, it meant I would go in on a fairly regular basis and speak at school assembly, or occasionally I'd sit down with 20 or so students, and we would work through moral and ethical issues. And on one occasion, I asked them to use their imagination. And I asked them to imagine that the sailing ship they had been on, a cruise liner, had in fact sunk. And they were one of six people that managed to get into this particular uh, lifeboat. It wasn't much of a lifeboat, quite honestly, kind of small rubber dinghy. But after about 40 minutes of being immensely grateful that they had, in fact, survived, the rubber dinghy was taking on water. And it was sinking lower and lower, and the waves were coming in over the edge. And with some quick thinking, they discovered that unless we lessen the weight in the dinghy, is going to sink. And they agreed to vote that one person would have to go overboard. The first person in the boat was a 21-year-old young lady. Second person was a 70-year-old scientist. Third person, two, in fact, young Korean couple. Frank, the ship's cook, was also in there. And Charlie was a single father of two teenagers. Which one of them would you vote out of the life vessel? And so the students and I got into all sorts of complicated issues on ethics and morals, and we struck something of an impasse. And they said, can't you tell us a little more about the people involved? 
Okay. The 21-year-old young lady was expecting her first baby. And if she was voted out, you would be condemning two lives, not just one. 70-year-old scientist was on the verge of developing a cure for cancer. If he was voted out, millions upon millions upon generations yet unborn would be impacted by your vote. Third, young Korean couple, they had just fled a concentration camp in North Korea, and they were looking for a new life and a fresh start. And you know, if you vote one, both will probably go. Frank, the ship's cook, is your father. (laughs) Do you vote Frank? And how are you going to explain that to your mom and your siblings? And finally, Charlie, a single father of two teenagers, was in fact Prince Charles. (laughs) And his two teenagers, William and Harry, were in their teens at the time, and they had to come to a decision. As soon as I said Charles was Prince Charles... Three classes that I worked with immediately said, Charles, he's out of here. (laughs) And when I asked why, each of the classes independently said this. He has had an elite upbringing and he's wealthy. Isn't that strange? that he was out of there because of a privileged lifestyle and he had wealth. Therefore, he was suitable for voting out. How do you come to a conclusion on moral, ethical decisions? And that's where we're going this morning in the commandments. Over these last few weeks together, as we've wrestled with the principles of the commandments, we've also said it's not enough simply to wrestle with the principles. We also have to ask ourselves, how do we live out our faith day by day by day? How do we do the hard work of living out our faith in a 21st century cultural context? Most of you are aware that Over the last few weeks, in spending time in the commandments, two weeks ago we dealt with abortion. Talk about an emotionally charged, complicated issue. Last week, it was adultery. And here at First Presbyterian, whenever a difficult passage in Scripture comes our way, we're going to try and deal with it. Whether it's controversial or not, whether it's emotionally charged or not, whether it's sensitive or not, because we're convinced that the Scriptures speak into our lives and into every single area of our lives. It's not just there to give us a pat in the back, say, attaboy, and allow us to leave with warm, fuzzy feelings. But it challenges us, and it challenges us deeply to follow Christ day by day in a manner that says our walk must equal our talk because God never calls us to be Sunday morning Christians only. He calls us to live out our faith day by day by day. Occasionally I'll find myself in a situation, and I suspect you have as well, 
when you're sitting down chatting with someone and you're asking them, how has their week been? How is their family? What's happening at work? What's happening in the next few months? And you're just chatting and catching up. And then the person you're talking to will say to you, you know, I'm facing this situation and I need your advice and help. And then they describe a situation. And you say, well, have you thought of? And they say, yeah, 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 yeah. I tried that. It didn't work. Well, what about approaching it from this angle? You know, that crossed my mind and I decided, maybe not. And then eventually you get a little frustrated and you end up saying, okay, tell me what it is you want out of life. That's a big question. Because when you answer that question, you can often then make your descent into dealing with a specific issue before you. But the commandments take it a little further. And they hint at the question of what is it you want out of life by taking it to a whole new level and ask the question not so much what do you want out of life, but rather who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Now, I suspect most of us have deep affection and admiration for folks in our life who have and display and demonstrate character and integrity, faithfulness, reliability, men and women of prayer, men and women whose walk equals their talk, people you can rely on, folks you admire, because they are asking themselves day by day as they seek to live out their faith, who is it I want? to be. And the Eighth Commandment focuses on exactly that question when it comes to, you shall not steal. And you may be sitting there saying, okay, Richard, I think I understand what you're saying, but I'm not convinced you shall not steal is honestly a big issue. And as for you shall not covet, well, quite honestly, when you covet, you don't do anyone any harm, so I'm not even sure why it's in the commandments, quite frankly. And honestly, you shall not steal, really, in this day and age. And incidentally, if you're stealing from a major multinational corporation, Quite frankly, they're never going to miss it. It doesn't really matter. Or if you take from someone who's wealthy, does that matter? They have more money than sense anyway. It doesn't really matter. And what you're doing is you are demonstrating a pattern of behavior that reminds us as individuals and a nation that the erosion of our moral fabric is at times slow and silent and subtle, and it's no big deal. Really? Is that where we want to go as individuals and as a nation? When I was a wee boy growing up in the mid-1960s, 
a movie that became incredibly popular in the latter, latter half of the 1960s was called Oliver. And it was based on the story of Oliver Twist. And one of the things I've learned over the years in reading Dickens is this, that Dickens delights in telling great stories with wonderful characters, but the characters, sometimes the name of the character resembles the person's characteristics. And so in Oliver, you have this wonderfully enormous individual called Mr. Bumble, and he kind of bumbles around the place. And if you're familiar with the musical, you'll know Mr. Bumble. Now you have the artful Dodger. Now there's a name which tells you a little about his character. And you also have Fagin and Bill Sykes and Nancy and, of course, Oliver himself. And there's one point in the musical which is filled with a ton of memorable songs, many of them you'll know by heart, where Fagin gathers all the homeless boys together and he is teaching and training them how to lift handkerchiefs and pens and wallets as pickpockets. And as the story develops and the song emerges, it reads like this. Take a tip from Bill Sykes. He can whip what he likes. I recall he started small. He had to pick a pocket or two. He had to pick a pocket or two. He had to pick a pocket or two. And you can hear it in your mind just as you read it. But notice the third line. I recall he started small. Slow and subtle and silent. And over the period, Bill Sykes turns into a hardened criminal capable of taking life. When we say theft is no big deal, let's stop and understand exactly what's happening here. When you steal from someone else, what you are saying is, I want what you have, and it should be mine. And I really don't care what you think or what you want. I am taking it, and in the process, I'm going to treat you with contempt and disrespect and disregard because what you want doesn't matter. Even though you've worked your socks off getting there, doesn't matter because I want it and I'm going to take it. That's theft. What about borrowing from someone and you never actually return it? Is that theft? Now, your intent was to return it. And I'm going to go home this afternoon and look through my garage, knowing that I have borrowed tools from my next-door neighbor six months ago and never actually returned it. But the fact of the matter is it's no longer there. It's with me. It's now become mine. Or a book. Let me take it to another level entirely. You're having lunch with a colleague at work, and in the course of your conversation, you intentionally run down the opposition in your business, another firm, so that your business can receive a new contract, and you have stolen someone else's reputation. 
Is that theft? Slow, silent, subtle. Almost no one will ever know. What about stealing the innocence and purity of someone you're dating? And the ripple effects will go on for many, many years. Take a tip from Bill Sykes. He can whip what he likes. I recall he started small. You've got to pick a pocket or two. It's no big deal. doesn't matter. And the eighth and tenth commandment comes together. And we saw it last Sunday morning when we looked at you shall not commit adultery, David and Bathsheba. And as David stood there on the roof of his palace and he saw Bathsheba, he entered into covetousness and he wanted what did not belong to him. Please do not think for a moment Covetousness is no big deal and it's not harming anyone. It is deadly and enslaving and addictive as sin is. And David became preoccupied with Bathsheba. Nothing else dominated his mind or would satisfy. And that's covetousness. You yearn for, you hanker after, you crave, you build up an insatiable desire that my life cannot possibly be contented or fulfilled or satisfied in any way unless I have this thing. And that's what covetousness does. It changes our focus from the love and grace and goodness of Almighty God. And it deceives us into believing that unless we have this thing, our life is not complete. That's covetousness. And in fact, covetousness takes us all the way back to the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. And suddenly, unless you have power and position and influence and prestige, then life is not worth living. That's how subtle and slow and silent covetousness is. That's why it's right there in the commandments. Let me ask you to use your imagination again. You're 34 years old. You're a young, attractive, single female. And quite frankly, from up here, you look pretty good. You look pretty good because you are only 34 and very attractive. And you and your best friend have been friends since college. You have off and on dated similar boys. You've gone on holidays together. You've spent Thanksgiving and Christmas at each other's home. She is your best friend. And then you discover she's dating the young man you've had your eye on for months. How do you respond? How do you respond when someone you know 
put in a better offer on a house that was perfect for you. It was in this ideal neighborhood. It's in the right school zone, the proper number of homes. It has a two-car garage, and you can't wait to take it up, only to discover someone you know put in a better offer. And you'd prayed about that house. It was perfect for you. Your realtor told you there would be no problem. How do you respond? That's the hard work of maturity and character development that our Christian faith calls us to. Who is it you want to be? What about the job at work? Where three or four of you in the same office building put in for promotion, you successfully went through the first two levels of interview, and it's come to the final interview. And you have prayed and prayed and prayed, and in your mind, you're already spending the salary increase, and you know you will do the job, and you know you will do, do it well. And then the person at the other end of your office, they sit ten feet from you, was given the job and you were not. How do you respond? It's mine. I should have had it. Why have I been putting in all these extra hours over the years? Why isn't it mine? I deserve it. It's my precious. ever been there? I would have to tell you in my personal experience, and I suspect some of you have been there as well, that when God seems to be opening a door of opportunity, whether it is in promotion at work, a new home, an ethical situation that you need to make your mind upon, up upon, and things don't work out the way you had hoped and prayed for, I would have to tell you that 70% of the time, God inevitably provides for me in a much greater and fuller and richer way than I first imagined He would. You can absolutely trust Him. You don't have to pick a pocket or two. You don't have to run down someone else's reputation in order to build up your own business. You don't have to ruin someone's innocence and purity in a date. You don't have to live like that. You shall not steal. Ask yourself, who is it I want to be? Do I want to be following Christ day by day? Do I want to be surrendering every aspect of my life? Do I want to be godly in my relationships? Those are the questions that come out of the commandments. Do you honestly feel and believe you will be more content with more possessions? Really? The Apostle Paul and let me try and wrap things up with these words. Writes in Philippians chapter 4, and he writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being 
content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. The Apostle Paul is reminding us that deep, rich, full contentment doesn't come from possessions or privilege or position. It comes from our relationship with Him. It is conceived and birthed in deep abiding intimacy with Him. It is refined and shaped and character restored and renewed and refreshed and deeply energized through time spent with Him in prayer. That's where contentment is found. That's where the reality of living out our faith is found. That's the place where we say absolutely not to the slow, subtle, silent change in moral and ethical values around us. And we say we will not live like this. I know who I'm becoming. I know the way I should go. And it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And it's He who enables me. He's the one who strengthens me. He's the one that allows me to delight in the commandments. Not trying somehow to say it's no big deal or it really doesn't matter. It is a big deal and moral purity and holiness matters. That's why Scripture teaches on it so often. And so when you're tempted to believe and say, Richard, I could never do this on my own. Please understand, Scripture never asks you to. Look at the second line up on the far right-hand side of the screen. I can do everything through Him who gives me the strength. Attempt it in your own strength, you will inevitably fail. Try to do it through your own energy and determination and perseverance. It will not work. But when you are focused on who you are becoming and allowing Him to refine and shape you, then you can do all things through Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank You that it speaks into our lives. Thank you that you call us to deal with real-life issues day by day by day. And Father, we dare to ask that you would refine us and change us and transform us and grant to us the equipping grace and the power to live for you day by day. Father, bless us, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.